0: the type of person who wants coaching is someone who loves accountability. And this is the one thing that average people don't get. Average people don't like accountability. Whereas the Michael Jordans, the Tiger Woods of the world, they love accountability because they know that it's there to level them up.
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Deepak Chopra, the highest levels of performance come to people who are centered, intuitive, creative, and reflective. Our guest today, Todd Herman, is a leading expert on peak performance He's an entrepreneur, coach, and mentor who's been working with the highest achievers in sports and business for over two decades. Todd's professional training programs are delivered annually to over 200,000 professionals in 73 countries, and he's been featured on the Today Show, CBS, Business Insider, and more. He's also the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, The Alter Ego Effect. Todd, welcome, excited to have have you join us on the Elevate podcast.
0: Always excited to jam with you and hear that velvety, smooth voice
1: of yours. <laughs> well, glad to hear that you're, you're doing better. As we joked, you were a very early adopter of COVID-19. I was. You were. When were you diagnosed? Um, March the 5th. So I, had, um,
0: I got it because on February 15th, I was at an uh, American Ninja Warrior gym, uh, really, a big trampoline park that has American Ninja Warrior training. And my oldest daughter is obsessed. She wants to do the American Ninja Warrior Kids Edition. So we were doing the warped wall, which I had accomplished and beat the week before. And they were encouraging me to go and do it again. And when I went up it, I ruptured my Achilles. And so on February 26th, I went into the hospital to get my Achilles repaired. And that's when I actually ended up most likely getting the virus. So, yes, I was an early adopter of
1: the COVID 19 <laughs> crisis. Oh, so you got it in the hospital? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you grew up in uh in a pretty unique place on a ranch in Alberta, Canada. Sounds like you may headed back in that direction, but tell me a little bit about what was it like growing up in that environment? What interested you to, as a kid? How'd you spend your time? Yeah.
0: Um, I was a bit of a fish out of water, actually. Like, I mean, it was, um, it was amazing because you know, I'm one of those kids who got lucky with the types of parents that I got. I mean, I totally won the lottery on that on that side of things. And they instilled in us, you know, a lot of great integrity and character traits, which are those foundational things that are going to set you up for success in life, I guess. But I was a fish out of water in that I'm a massive extrovert. I could spend every hour of my day just doing stuff like this, talking to people, being around people all day long, I get energy from it. And so when you're out in the uh, truly the middle of nowhere, I mean, we I grew up on a 10,000 plus acre farm and ranch, and our nearest neighbor was Three kilometers away, or a couple of miles away, so felt a little bit isolating. You know, my best friends were my horse Cracker Jack and um, our dog Tippy. I guess so, but you know, it was it was. I had two older brothers. And on a farm and ranch, when you've got two older brothers and it's time to do work and the work needs and demands, all three of you, it typically means that it's pretty crappy work (laughs) and they would always make me do the worst of it
1: typically. So
0: I I didn't develop the affinity towards it like many, like my brothers did, because I wasn't driving the big tractors as much as they were. I was kind of doing a lot of grunt work around the farm, but it gave us a good, strong work ethic. and, And like I said, I had phenomenal parents. So that really helped set me up for some successes that I've had.
1: So did you decide early on, like, I'm going to live in a big crowded city? Like, was that, did you want the opposite of that? I can take you to the
0: exact spot (laughs) on our farm when I was eight years old and I was walking around and we didn't really have much television. And I don't even think I remember even seeing a picture of New York city. I just heard about this place called New York city. And I was like, that's where I'm going to live. That's where I need to be. And, you know, it took me maybe a little longer than I wanted to. I moved there when I was 31, but uh, yeah, I've been in New York
1: city for 13 plus years now. Interesting. And, and you, I mean, maybe the tied to what you said. I mean, you're kind of a rare example of someone who built a coaching career like pretty early on and sort of established yeah. it as as your beachhead. What what drew you to performance coaching in the first place? Um, yeah, to your point, I mean,
0: I got into coaching in 1997 when there was no industry. And how old were you at that point? 21. 21. So I played, I was a good athlete. I played college football, I had scholarships and I was a nationally ranked badminton player, which, you know, football and badminton doesn't sound like they should go hand in hand, but (laughs) (laughs) totally rare combination. Um, but some of it was just a byproduct of like where I grew up and, uh, but I'm not like a physically gifted person. I'm not six foot four and 245 pounds of solid muscle or something. I'm six feet. And, you know, in high school, I was maybe 159 pounds soaking wet, but my strength was, and someone was born out of the fact that I was, I had two older brothers. I I had a really good mental game. I was a pretty mentally tough kid, and that's the stuff that carried me through and Early on, when I was in high school, i'm dyslexic, and so I always was challenged by reading. But if there was one thing that was always fascinated with it was just the mind and how it worked. And um, some of that sort of passion or desire came out of one of my early mentors and coaches, Grant Henderson, who was my principal and also my my sports coach when I was in junior high school. And he gave me a book on leadership because I needed it badly um, after I got kicked out of a volleyball game for inciting a uh, fight because I <laughs> um, punched a guy through the net for trying to kick me in the uh, groin area. <laughs> and apparently you're not supposed to fight in volleyball there's, there's the football side coming into volleyball and yeah.
1: badminton. Yeah,
0: exactly. So he said, listen, kid, you're a good athlete, but you're a pain in the ass to uh, deal with. And, and your teammates don't even like really playing with you because you're you're just too hyper competitive. Um, so he gave me a book to read and it was actually a terrible book on leadership, but the, the author talked something about the mind. And so I kind of fell down this rabbit hole. And uh, long story short, the whole purpose of me saying this was I found the... Sort of, through my studies, the biological process of how you get into the zone and flow state, which is what every athlete is trying to get to, yeah, and that 's how I was able to excel as an athlete. I played way above my size and typically even maybe above my skill set because I was constantly just you know trusting this flow that was there. So after I got done, in college, I started volunteering at a high school, teaching the defensive backs on the football team. And I'd spend way more time with them on the mental game. I'm like, listen, you don't need to work harder on the physical stuff. You don't need to do more cone drills, more sprints. That's not going to help you. You've got terrible practice routines. You've got terrible game prep. You've got, you don't set goals for yourself. You're not, you know, tracking and, and trying to close the feedback loop on your development. And I was just giving them like breathing strategies, visualization stuff, all the stuff that I was using. And these kids were starting to get really good results word spread one of my good friends in Edmonton um his name's Eric Morissette he's one of the top hockey trainers in the world he runs this really big hockey academy trains a ton of NHL guys so National Hockey League guys he's like hey would you mind coming in and talking to our kids about some of this mental game stuff and I was like yeah sure And it wasn't a business it was just I just loved I mean I I just wanted to be involved in sports some way yeah and, uh, again, same thing. They started getting results. And then parents started asking me, Hey, would you mentor my son or daughter? And I was like, yeah, sure. And saying yes, without even asking for money. Cause I wasn't thinking about it that way. And they're like, okay, well, how much would you charge? And I said, um, $75 for three sessions. So that was my rate, $75 for a pack of three sessions. And I did that for three years. And, um, at the end of my first year, I calculated it. And because they were all in-home visits with people, again, I'm driving around where I was living at the time, which is Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I was driving from home to home um, and gas prices weren't all that cheap back then. I was making $8.56 an hour. But I got a lot of reps in. I got a lot of hours because I had a waiting list of people working with me or wanting to work with me. And it was it, it's what helped accelerate me. That's why I love the name of your, your business because I use the word acceleration all the time too. It accelerated me and my skill sets so that I could start working with higher and higher quality athletes like Olympians and pro athletes. So I got involved super early and I just love coaching. I just, you know, and it's, it's because the type of person who wants coaching is someone who loves accountability. And this is the one thing that average people don't get. Average people don't like accountability. Whereas the Michael Jordans, the Tiger Woods of the world, they love accountability because they know that it's there to level them up.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I have you, you and I both know Cam Harold. I, I heard Cam yeah. Harold and and Marshall Goldsmith both said the same thing, which is, great coaches pick good clients. <laughs> they don't they don't pick the unwilling. Like they yeah. they pick the people who want to get better, want the feedback. Like, and, and they're very they're very intentional about that.
0: Yeah, it's it's like because some people have asked me, how do you sell coaching? I'm like, you don't sell coaching. Coaching sells itself. Coaching truly sells itself. You're just trying to coach people who don't want to be coached. Like. My, one of my mentors, his name is Jim Rohn. Forbes Magazine named him as one of the top three most important business philosophers of the 20th century. Best quote ever. Yeah, <laughs> he's a coding machine. And he was, he was the one who really helped me adopt a healthy mindset to relationship with words and how words really matter. And it's actually influenced a lot of my peak performance work that I do with people and the way that I consult with sports teams and even organizations. Everyone's so concerned about trying to change everyone's thoughts. And I'm like, why? That's just the natural activity of the brain just because you have negative thoughts doesn't mean anything. Everyone has them. So why are you trying to change your negative thinking? Change your words, change the way you speak. Plus as an organization, that's the stuff that you can monitor, you can police, you can shift, you can change. And for me, when I'm, if I'm coaching you, Robert, I'm paying attention to the word choices that you use because your word choices tell me a lot more about, it's a reflection of what's going on inside your head.
1: Yeah, we're going to get into that in a bit. But you've done some fascinating stuff recently, (laughs) scanning word choices from conversations. I've really enjoyed your your article. So let's hold off on that because I I want to dig into that. Yeah, yeah. This is a good I think, look, there's a lot of young entrepreneurs I know who listen. But I think I was gonna ask you how you got anyone to like pay attention to you at 21. But I'll, I'll tell everyone the exact roadmap I did. You moved up the curve. I mean, you you, yeah. you, you, know, you did it in youth hockey and then I'm sure college hockey asked you and then pros, so yeah. you sort of moved up the curve, I'm guessing. Well,
0: here's what I did really well at the very beginning. So I am a 4-H kid. Uh, so if anyone doesn't know what 4-H is, 4-H is like agricultural boy scouts. It's a group that you get involved in. Um, there's all sorts of types of clubs that are there. But a part of 4-H is, if you're involved in it as a youth, they always have a speaking competition every single year. So you have to do some sort of... For- form of public speaking. So at the age of 10, I got introduced to public speaking and now I'm an extrovert. I love communicating and I fell in love with it quickly. And I actually won when I was 10 years old, I actually won the public speaking competition and had done it several years after that. Now, having said all that, When I started this peak performance thing, when people started asking me if I'd mentor their sons or daughters, I was like, listen, are these people, is this actually a business? I've never even heard of a mental game coach. Like I'm good at this and I'm doing this. But yes, I know that there's people in the pros and stuff that use mental game or Olympic athletes that use mental game stuff and sports psych people. But at this amateur level, is this even a thing? So I was like, well, how can I validate this? And the one right move I did was I chose one specific method to validate my business model. And that was something I was already very good at, which was speaking. So I decided I was going to do as many speeches as I could on what I called the triune athlete, the mentally, emotionally, and physically tough athlete, that when you align these three things, elevates your performance and allows you to finally play to your capabilities. And so I said I was going to do as many as I could in 90 days. And I had two people that I knew I could reach out to that could maybe book me. A good friend of mine, Eric, again, he's the one who kind of got me started a little bit, bringing it into his hockey academy. And then another friend, Mark, who was the uh, head of a hockey association in Edmonton. So I reached out. They both said yes. And then I said to them, do you know anyone else that you could maybe connect me with? And so they did. So the reason it worked was I said, I normally charge $2,200 for this speech. I'm doing as many free ones as I can in the next 90 days because I feel like this message is so important. And I want as many people as I can to hear it. And I said that at my speeches as well. And um, I ended up doing 68 speeches in 90 days.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say it was a rolling 90 days, but it was a hard 90 days. Okay. It was a hard 90 days. It was, yeah, it was June 5th. It
0: was June 5th I was done. Um, and so what I would say at the end of every single talk was, or what I would say to people when I book them is like, the only way that I'm going to do this for free is if um, there's at least one parent for, for each of the kids that's in the room. Because for me, I was actually in a bad business model. I was giving a service to one person, but someone else was paying for it. The kid was getting the service, the parents were paying, right? I couldn't have kids come to my speeches or workshops and then go home and try and sell me. They'll be like, oh man, I just heard this guy talk about the mental game. And he talked about this thing called the reticular is, dad Can I work with him? Like it wouldn't work, right? I needed the checkbook or the credit card in the room as well. And uh, so I ended every single talk with, listen, I know a lot of your parents that are back there um, have other sons or daughters that are in other sports or other teams, and they're not here tonight. So if you'd like to come up and talk to me about bringing me out to talk to uh, their team or their association preferences, I'd love to talk to as many people as I possibly can. Uh, I'd love to chat because I'm, I'm not going to be doing these talks for free for, for too much longer. So it created a sense of urgency, right? Which we all know. I didn't even realize I was doing some good things in the beginning, but that's what helped me. So that's what's, and by the end of that 90 days, every single person in my province of Alberta either knew me or was one degree away, one person away from knowing me. And that's what filled up my, my business.
1: All right. So if we fast forward 20 years, you've now worked with some of the world's top performers. What are the consistent characteristics across like business, sports, music, otherwise that, that these people share, or maybe it's habits as much as it's characteristics. Well um,
0: that's kind of one of the myths There's high performers. High performers have, you know, you focus on routines and habits, but the elite performers, the truly elite or the peak performers, we focus on rituals, we focus on disciplines, and we focus on shaping the environment around you, and uh, which all creates this powerful mindset that's there. So some of the characteristics that they have better than others, one of them is discipline, just a phenomenal discipline to apply that discipline to an idea. So like Michael Jordan, as an example, had just a phenomenal discipline to be not just the best, but inarguably the best. Wayne Gretzky was the same way. And and they took care and they did more of the little things than other people. I remember when a book came out back in the 1990s called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. (laughs) Um, And it was a very, very popular book. And I get the idea of it, but in the practical application of the people who were the best, they did the exact opposite. They all sweated the details. They all sweated the small stuff.
1: You, you put Tom Brady in that bucket? Yeah,
0: okay. 100%. 100%, man. So the disciplines, that's one thing. And, and they do. They truly do have an extreme passion for what they do. They, just, they, they absolutely love not just the competition side of things. They love all of it. They love the hard grind of the practicing, the working on the small fundamentals than even high performers
1: do. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I have I heard that. I, it was someone was talking, uh, it was on a Tim Ferriss episode where uh, said, yeah, the, the best people in anything, they love practice. <laughs> they love it. Practice is
0: the great separator. Yeah. the Great separator. I, I went and did a, uh, I got the chance to go do a, a workout thing with Jerry Rice. This is about a decade after he was outside of his career. And he was going into work with a bunch of uh, wide receivers on one of the Uh, one of the NFL teams. And A, he was there 30 minutes before all of them. One guy, because there was a team that I was working with, had said, I'm going to beat Jerry Rice. And he didn't. Jerry Rice is already there. And then when the practice was over, Jerry was out there for an hour longer than everyone else. And the only reason that he was doing it, because he didn't need to be preparing for anything, was just to show them, even to that day a decade later, how much further they were all going to have to go if they were even going to think about sniffing the bottom of his cleats and the records that he
1: set. I'm probably going to butcher this story, but I feel like I just heard a similar one. I don't know whether it was Kobe Bryant or something when he was playing Drain Wade and the first time they got out there and he just, it was a shoot around. He went out an hour before him. I think you're thinking about our friend, Alan Stein Jr.
0: So Alan, who who wrote a great sports and sort of mindset book as well. Alan, he, he went and showed up to a, a practice that, uh, Kobe was had invited him to come to and he thought he was showing up an hour earlier and and Kobe was already there yeah, working out. So it wouldn't be surprising if someone else was telling that exact same story because it's going to be consistent
1: across many people's
0: interactions with them.
1: And and when they asked the person about it, the older player was like, yeah, I I showed up an hour earlier just to show you (laughs) you weren't going to outwork (laughs) me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, a lot of this led to your first book uh, last year, "The Alter Ego Effect." I've, yeah. I've written about it Friday Forward. Can you describe the alter ego effect for the audience, for anyone who hasn't hasn't heard it before? Yeah. So, uh,
0: the alter ego as a concept has been around for 2,000 plus years. Um, it was uh, Cicero that actually coined the term alter ego back in 44 BC when he called it the other eye or trusted friend within. And um, the great thing about the idea is every single person that's listening has already used this idea. We did it when we were young kids asking ourselves, oh, what could I do if I was Superman when I jumped off the the sofa or when we're in our front driveway and we're playing as our favorite you know, sports star in basketball yeah. or baseball or whatever. We, and and the, really what we're doing is we're saying to ourselves, what could I do if, which means If I unshackle myself from my own idea of what I think I can and cannot do, what could I do if I had LeBron's skills or Wayne Gretzky's skills or Sidney Crosby or insert the name of any one of a number of sports heroes that people have? And it allows you to now just see yourself in a new way. And when you understand the human behavior and psychology, human beings always act through whatever they associate themselves with. So, stories and narratives and ideas and beliefs about ourselves can trap us or they can free us. And uh, the alter ego is this powerful model that tens of thousands of millions of people, elite performers have used to help them perform above their capabilities to their capabilities consistently. And what I found was when I started working with more and more elite athletes. And again, I wasn't, I was unique in that I didn't stick to one sports group. I wasn't just a hockey guy. I worked in, um, 78 plus different sports and getting the chance to work with the elite in 78 different sports allows you to get this like broad data set and see, wow, like there's this interesting trend amongst the people who consistently perform at elite levels. And one of the things that they would be using was this idea of a persona or a secret identity or an alter ego or a performance um, identity, some people would call it, for how they would show up out there. So like Kobe had the Black Mamba. Yeah. Beyonce has Sasha Fierce. Mr. Rogers had Daniel Tiger even. And it doesn't map to just sports. It actually maps to many, many different things. And what it does, it actually allows the most true and real version of your capabilities to bring forth because so many people get trapped by the ideas of and worries of what other people might think of them, the judgment, the criticism, you know, even imposter syndrome or, you know, not allowing yourself to play to your capabilities because of maybe past traumas or stories or things that you've got going on in your own head. And um, an alter ego becomes this powerful anchoring point, an idea in your mind of the new possibility of what you want to act through. And uh, so that's what I became really known for in pro sports and Olympic sports is I'm the guy that's built up thousands of performance identities for athletes all around the world. And um, it was always a kind of a secret sauce inside of our company because I'm kind of known more as a quick hit artist. I'm a guy that can come in and make shifts happen really fast because when you can change someone's identity, you change everything on top of it. So, while some people want to work on habits or they want to fall down into the tangled web of beliefs, which is a very difficult thing to get ensnared in, I just want to change your identity. I want to custom build who's going to be showing up onto that field of play for you. And again, now it's translated into the world of business as well, or people going up on stage and speaking. And when people realize that we have many different roles that we play in life, and each role demands maybe a new set of uh, attributes or traits to help you be successful. And it actually maps to, science and psychology. You know, for the longest time, people were taught through the spiritual teachings and through psychology that anyone who had a really healthy state of psychology or the highest state of mental health, meaning lowest rates of depression, low rates of anxiety and depression, all had a single identity. They all acted through a single self. So I am who I am no matter where I go. Well, that didn't resonate with me because on the field to play, I'd be like, Well, that doesn't make any sense because my athlete, when he's walking off, is very different in the locker room or with his family than he is out there, right? So I just take a look at some of the paradigms that people operate through in life, and it doesn't hold water most of the time. It doesn't bear fruit. So then in about 2008, the entire world of psychology shifted. And now one of the fastest growing fields of psychological study is this idea of multiple selves. And it's not even a a theory anymore. It's that the people who see themselves as having many sides of themselves, many personalities, and they're all based on the roles that they're in or the the environments and contexts of their lives have an extremely high level of mental health, meaning they've got higher levels of grit, perseverance, and enjoyment of life. So the alter ego was a really fast path for me to help change someone's performance if they were stuck or in a slump or wanted to make a big shift and change or they were leveling up to a new um, league or uh, making a big transition to another sports team.
1: How how do you think about all these personalities and sort of authenticity across all of them? And then the other question, these are not related, but I'll say them both. You can pick and choose which one. So we know like, Kobe's persona how many of these how many of these athletes people are public with it or like have signed you to secrecy where they don't want anyone to to know about it yeah so I mean kind of one of the uh rules of thumb is we don't share this is like
0: and again it's not a hard and fast rule but for people just starting out it's like your secret weapon got it because my one of my alter egos when I played football was Geronimo and Geronimo was a composite of Ronnie Lott Walter Payton and five Native American warriors. And I had a very specific process for how I activated it. It was a real ritual that I did in the locker room. But I love that no one knew it. They didn't know the tribe that I was carrying with me. out on not You thought that you were playing against the 159-pound kid. You weren't. You were at such a disadvantage. And that attitude is one of the attitudes that is sort of a hallmark of the elite performers that I found. Kobe was the same way. Kobe kept the black mamba in a cage in his own mind. And he would approach it tentatively, and he wouldn't open up the cage until it was really really time to let the Black Mamba out. And when it was out, it was like, ooh, boy, game on. And it's about finding the switches that you can flick to help give you that edge over other people. And so not many people shared them publicly. Uh, it was always a very private thing. Even when you know I share the story at the beginning of the book about Bo Jackson, and when Bo and I first met at a speaking event in, in Georgia— and I, he asked me what I was speaking on that day. And I told him, well, oh, I'm going to talk to the kids about, uh, the mental game, but specifically about how to build an alter ego to, uh, truly unpack their capabilities on the field. And he looked at me kind of cocked his head to the side and he said, Bo Jackson never played a down of football his entire life. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, interesting, tell me more. And he said, you know, yeah, my, my alter ego, when I went out there was Jason from Friday the 13th. And that was because I was so emotional all the time. I was an angry kid. And I was watching this movie and I saw this cold, calculating, unemotional character come on the screen. And I thought, why don't I take that with me out there? Which sounds crazy to people. Here's someone who battled with being angry and they took Jason from Friday the 13th, but it wasn't he was taking the serial killer out there. He was taking the unemotional character out there. So he wanted to destroy everything that got into his path with no emotion. And that's actually a big part of the process. I have this canvas, this process that I walk people through. And the key thing with any uh, role that we have in our life is what's the mission of that role. And for him, it was to go out onto that field and destroy everything in his path with no emotion, which based on his role, which is a running back, that's a very, very powerful way to think about it. And yet most people don't operate that way in the roles that they they float between everything. They float, they're floaters. And then they wonder why they're getting really bad results. And again, like I'm not speaking to the average people out there, Robert, you know, this stuff isn't going to resonate with people who just want to kind of roll along with the masses, but the people who are ambitious, who want to achieve big things, I'm telling you, there is one domain you have got to dominate. And that is the six inches between your ears. That's where the winning happens. Everyone's so concerned about, you know, looking a certain part or whatever. No, no, no. You master the six inches between your ears and you are unfreaking stoppable. And most people don't think about that and they won't pay for it either. The average people don't pay for mindset. It's so funny. I have people who say like, man, how do you get people to pay for mindset stuff? And I'm like, because I go after people who are elite. I don't go after average people.
1: I'm not here to pander to the average. To our comment earlier about picking the right clients. But but what about the question on on authenticity? And I mean, do people, some people... Horrible question. Horrible question,
0: Robert. Okay. I'm not, and I'm not busting on you. I'm just saying it's a frame that average people live through. Yeah. Oh, I got I to gotta be authentic. What, to who? Everyone else? What about you being authentic to yourself? Most people have not. Like, do you have a deliberate practice every single day of reflecting on who is showing up? Here's the answer. No. No, people don't. And so don't tell me that you think you know who you are because you don't know who you are. I've been doing this work for 22 years. I just got off a call literally, you know, Um, An hour and a half ago, with a multi-multi-multi-million-dollar entrepreneur, very successful man, and I just walked him through kind of this big P-performance canvas process that I have, and all these different assessments. And he sat there and goes, "This is the most real version. I, I I could have never guessed that this is who I actually am, but this is who I am." And I say that because authenticity, while it's a nice idea, I like the definition of it. It has no practical application in the idea of you having one self It's not true. So I'll give you an example, Robert, all day long, and people could probably get this from this interview. I am a challenger personality type, and I have to be. Based yeah. on the work that I do with elite people, working with public figures and sports stars and, you know, hard-charging, type A, ambitious CEOs and entrepreneurs, I have to break through some hard exteriors with people. So I need to challenge people on their vulnerability, because I need vulnerability. I need 100% vulnerability. In order for me to work with you on performance, I need to know all of the warts, all of the insecurities, so that we can plot a path forward to make the changes and shifts so that you're actually leading a peak life. Meaning, not only do you achieve things that are amazing to yourself and other people, but you're enjoying the process. That's peak. That's peak performance. You're enjoying the process. So that's me in, as my role as a coach but I'm a dad to three little kids. Do my three little kids want to challenge a personality type when I get home? Just because I flex the muscle every single day of needing the traits and abilities for me to be successful. That's not me. That's not my definition of who Todd Herman is. There is another side of me that's patient, that's playful, that's fun. And that's what my kids want. You know, they're young. They're three, five, and seven. That's going to allow me to excel in my role as being a dad, being more patient, being more playful, right?
1: And so who's the real Todd? The reality is they're all the real Todd. Right. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. I was thinking more of the potential of people to sort of Abuse it or be, oh, sorry, you were talking to a hole Todd before. You know, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here, I'll give you a good example. Uh, you know, and people could do
0: that. I talk about in the process of building on an alter ego the importance of uniforms, and this maps directly back to behavioral psychology on how to get the best out of people. People who wear a uniform where the uniform has meaning, there's ritual to it are going to have a higher level of performance than people who don't have a uniform. It's just, it's science. Like when you, when, if you put on a Marine uniform, just like the Marines wear, you're going to walk and act in a different way. Right. You just are. It's just psychology. And so for me, I have a pair of glasses that I use in business. And it's for me. It's to create a trigger. It's about me setting a very intentional state for how I want to show up, so that I can be the best that I possibly can for the people that I'm trying to serve. Now, I don't wear those glasses around my kids. And if someone ever wants free coaching from me, or if they want something that demands the skill set, it's like, no, no, you want glasses, Todd. Or you know, like if we're out and we're meeting somewhere else. And I'm trying to have like a social night out and people are starting talking to me about business or trying to get, you know, coaching from me or something like that. It's like, no, no, no. I'm like, oh, you need, you need to pay for the glasses. Makes the lines really clear. Very clear, man. And I'm telling you, that is the challenge that people have in life. It's called role conflict. People can look it up. Most of the challenge that people have, especially in professional lives as as entrepreneurs, especially if you're in the knowledge capital business, like we both are basically that, you know, where's the line drawn? And I have a very clear line. It's like, you know, I know what my business is for. I know which side of me that skill set and that knowledge that I've accumulated, I know where that vault sits and there's a pair of glasses that sits on the front of that and if you want to access it then you can pay for the coaching or you can pay for the training or you can pay for you know the access to it.
1: Yeah and and I mean, this stuff is, is powerful. Uh, you know, what was it? It was probably the end of last year. I thought I was really clever and I reached out to you and I was like, hey, Todd, have you seen this? Have you seen the show, The Mass Singer? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, I, I've been watching. My kids dragged me into it and I'm watching the finals and these are all like well-known people and they're like hysterically crying. Yeah. Talking about how these costumes like change their whole confidence in life and I was like, sounds yeah. right. And you're like, yeah, you're 30, number 37 who emailed me today. But I, And then you went back and watched it and you even had a client that was on, and I'm curious, like, yeah. what was your sort of interpretation? I mean, these are like, like Wayne Brady, like, yeah, world-renowned talent, like, pissed off that he'd been slept on as a singer, as he said. Yeah, well, and I mean, i uh, by the way, I wasn't trying to make you feel bad if I was. I don't know. I just it. was saying I thought I was novel, and, and yeah, no, and, no,
0: no. The only reason I knew about the show was because uh my friend Layla Ali, Muhammad Ali's daughter, and you know, she's an undefeated world champion boxer as well. She was on it, and she was going back and forth with me about how transformative it was for her too and how she found a different side of herself. And that's one of the things that people discover through this process of playing with the idea of even other people's identities is you discover other sides of you. Because again, we get trapped into telling the story of who we are. Oh, I'm an introvert. Or that's just not me. I'm not really that outgoing. Or you know what? I really don't like that over there. It's like, no, 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 that's not true that's your version of truth, but that's not really, you're just narrating the same story every single day. And so just seeing those responses, like you had said, of people being interviewed after the, the finale on, on how transformative it was and how they found, you know, either a new gear, Or how it for Wayne Brady, I thought Wayne Brady's comment was just brilliant about how he had been living through this sort of trapped identity of other people describing what he was able to do. And here he is winning it all in the end. And people got to experience and see just truly what all of his skills and capabilities are. And that's the power of anonymity. Now, I'm not saying you can be going out into the world in a costume, in a costume, a uniform like that, like where you're completely anonymous. But it was a metaphor. I mean, it was a a metaphor. metaphor. And that's the power of this is that's why using the model of other people who you admire or love or like as a model in your own mind, it creates this anchor point for you so that you can step into new sides of yourself. It's been a lot of fun the last year getting the book out in such a wide audience. And um, it's kind of crazy, actually, the number of, I think I've got about 50% coverage now in the hip hop and rap world because based on my Instagram DMs, it's been funny to see some of the biggest names in hip hop reach out to me on Instagram DM and say, you know what, like, because again, it's very popular for that world to have a stage name, right? Yeah. And some of them, now that they've sort of achieved success, they worried that it had actually trapped them into this identity. And they're like, Oh my God, I never thought about using this exact same process in being a dad or in other areas. And, and I'm like, no, no, you intuitively did the right thing. And it's been, it's been fun to go back and forth with people who've experienced this already.
1: Well, let's uh, let's flip this in the business world. So, yeah. right when you recovered, and somewhere between COVID breaking out in the U.S. and after you recovered, you did this fascinating study where you got on the phone, you talked to 29 different CEOs who were sort of dealing with this in real time, and you, as you mentioned before, you recorded, uh, you, you counted all their words, and in doing that, you ended up dividing into three groups: the fear-focused CEO, the unfocused uh, CEO, and the strategy-focused CEO. So. Tell me a little bit about that, how you picked those classes and and what what you uncovered as the differentiators in terms of how they were managing that in real time. Well, I mean, anytime you have a major
0: event that's happening, even if it's a sports game, but when you have something like what the coronavirus pandemic has become, you've got people who are going to naturally sort of fall into what I was going to consider to be two groups. And it's just kind of human behavior. But there is actually three groups that developed. There was a there's a fear focused group, and it's people that they're the most emotional, most concerned, and they were the most overwhelmed by the situation. Yeah. Then there's the unfocused group. This was the this was the group I wasn't counting on. And the unfocused group was the group that was uncertain on what to do. Um, they were playing a lot of wait and see, but they're also the most dismissive about it. You know, whether it was like conspiracy theory or like this is people are overreacting. They, they were they were a group that was at least different from the fear focus group. And then the other group is the strategy focus group. They're The ones who are just going to like pull themselves up by their bootstraps and just get working. It's like, Hey, I get this crap's rolling downhill. Doesn't matter. It's rolling down on everybody. That's, that's kind of the beautiful thing about the pandemic is that it was happening to everybody. So for me, I was taking a look at this. And the, so to finish that off, you know, they're the most focused on taking what was given to them and using it and still focused on trying to find growth and opportunity in the actual crisis itself. So I'm going to do something about this. And, uh, what kind of pulled me into doing this study was I was like, you know what, seven months from now, there's going to be some Harvard business review article on the nine entrepreneurs that are winning right now. And here's what they did. And it was going to be retrospective. And here's what we know about memory. Um, six months after an event, your memory is really only going to be unpacking 50% of the truth.
1: Yeah, there's a longitudinal study where they've been asking people about the day of 9-11 for like 20 years and what they remember. Yeah. And they're tra- like, it's changing <laughs> over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating stuff. So what um, I wanted to capture
0: the data in the moment, like this is such a phenomenal window of time to see how people respond to crisis. And the way that I was doing it, I was saying this, I think at the beginning around, I want to pay attention to the words that you actually use, not what you're thinking. Okay. And so I interviewed 29 CEOs. I'm actually up to 92 now. We've got 92 CEOs in the study and it's a long-term study now. Um, they're filling out data sheets for me every single week and um, some of it's my own mental health stuff. And um, so these three groups started showing some really different signs. The fear focus group was consuming five times more media than yeah. the strategy focused group. They were saying things like the word government, Trump. 11 times more than the strategy focus group. 11 times more. 11 times more, yeah. They use the word feel six times more than the strategy focus group. So they're talking about their emotions, trying to handle the emotion or like stuff like that. And then the unfocused group, and there's there's a whole bunch more data that I have, but they were talking about how they're taking time off. You know know what, I'm going to take this as an opportunity to take time off away from the business. And some of that was because they had so much lack of clarity around what to do. So it's like, screw it, head in the sand. I'm going to remove myself from just even having to make a decision. They use the word plan in a negative or needs-based way, eight times more than strategy. There's I need a plan or trying to figure out a plan or something like that. You know, it's not that the word plan was bad. It's the context around it. Right. And in strategy focus group, they were nine times more likely in the beginning to be shifting their product and service offerings, four times more likely to have already made changes to their teams, meaning either cut back on their teams, move people around, shift the working hours, things like that. And like it's been fascinating to see how it's all ended up shaping out in the results now, now that I'm two months into this. these people know you're, they're all your guinea pigs? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, and, and only five of them knew me because I have too much context with some people. So um, this was all done through referral. And once I got a CEO, I'm like, I'm like hey, I want to get another CEO and I'd like to get them in this sort of, um, I, I wanted to get, at the very beginning, the the range in revenue was between $2.2 million and $511 million in revenue. Now I'm up to about $1.2 billion. That's the, the the CEO of the largest business is $1.2 billion. And I have a couple of people that are in like the $1 to $2 million range as well. So just this broad swath group of people in it. But it's been the data that's coming out of it is like just phenomenal for me.
1: Yeah. One of the things I heard uh, last week that I thought was really good advice was, was actually it almost goes to the, <laughs> the alter ego effect was that the company needed two separate contingencies, the sort of focused on the future group and the, solve the present problems group and not mm-hmm. to sort of mix those <laughs> up or, or we get a little messy, but to create clear, distinct roles and responsibilities in, in kind of each of those areas. Yeah. You're kind of doing a triage group. Like yeah. it's a triage
0: on like, you know, what's happening on the field, but then you also need to anchor people towards, cause you got to give people hope. You got to give people a vision because right. people think it's always going to stay this way exactly. as a leader. That's, you're going to do a disservice to the group. hundred percent.
1: Yeah. So if one of the fear-focused uh, or unfocused CEOs came to you for coaching, what, how would you coach each of them to help them improve their crisis leadership? Well, the first thing is
0: people think that we're naturally motivated by two things, the pain and gain. Yeah. My, my friend Nira Yell, uh, who wrote a great book last year called Indistractable, uh, we both were jamming on this ahead of time. And, and my experience is people are mostly and only motivated by pain. And so, what I like to do with anybody is to paint the picture of what is going to happen when you don't do anything about this. It it would be wonderful to think that everyone's going to be motivated by gain, like, hey, this is what's going to happen. Uh,
1: Does pain include the avoidance of pain? Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, And so, I want to paint that picture of what it's going to be looking like for that person if they don't take any actions. I also want to be painting a picture for that person of the fact that there are other people that are already doing and making positive changes or shifts. And and I want to also anchor the fact that inaction runs counter to this person's identity. This isn't really who you are. Because again, just understanding human behavior and psychology, we will always act through whatever we associate ourselves with. And my job as a coach is to deliver a new association for that person, even if they don't see it themselves. Because again, when I work with people, we do a lot of assessments with people like personality assessments and things like that and while I'm not a big believer in one personality assessment tells you a story on someone when you have 5 to 7 of them done there are patterns that emerge and those patterns kind of create the golden thread of the dna of a human being and that's what I coach to i bring them back to their baseline of you know this is actually how you're built like this is how you view the world and so those two things right there i'm going to coach someone on their identity because for me, again, just shifting someone when I can get them to see themselves in a different way, see themselves as a leader in a different way, it can change the actions. So what most people want to do is they want to be very prescriptive about the actions you should be taking. I want that person to come to their own resolution on that. While I know what the actions are, most of the time, I'd much rather have them come up with the answer. And then the secondly is I want to also paint the picture of you know, the impending doom if If they don't take the action, because, man, when you've got seventeen thousand plus hours working with people one on one when it comes to coaching stuff, like there are only a couple levers that you need to pull to get someone to to change.
1: Todd, I'm curious about the opposite though, about fear, whether what we fear is actually as bad as we think. So there's someone we both mm-hmm. know I was talking to recently runs a really successful company now, and they were sharing that. I don't know what it was 10 years ago they lost absolutely everything we're on a couch whatever and they're like you know <laughs> wasn't as bad as i you know the worst happened and it didn't kill me mm-hmm. that's an interesting aspect of fear like how much of it is like you so you're acting because you're so afraid of something happening but maybe that happens and it's it's not the worst thing in the world it, it sometimes is there just like actually facing what it is they're afraid of is, is not as bad, <laughs> that they're kind of actually you know, making it worse by just acting in, in fear of- uh, over- 100%. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I don't know about you, but my
0: experience of life is um, most of the, the fears or the worries that I've projected off into the future were, were never as bad as I was making them out to be. I mean, our imaginations are just unbelievable. And most people don't direct their imagination in a really positive way. So they continuously build up just horror stories in their own mind. And so that's why the whole idea of using that as a motivation for people is so easy because it's so easy because human beings do flex that muscle of, you know, projecting horror stories out into the future. Well, I'm like, why don't I just leverage that? Because again, I care about performance, Robert. Yeah. I'm not your happiness coach. I'm the guy that people like when you want to achieve a certain thing, then I want to help to make that happen.
1: There are so many people not performing because they are in the wrong job that is comfortable. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you hear these stories. And if they think that the worst thing in the world is that they lost that job and they lose that job, and it ends up being the turning point of their career.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's your experience like like, of terminating people that are on your team?
1: Uh, I mean we have a unique process. I, I was sharing with someone recently, we, we we try to actually enter into very honest early discussions w- with people. But what's interesting is that if we go to someone and we say, and in some cases, hey, look, this, all of our data says this is not going to work out, like, you know, kind of the blue pill and the red pill. The blue pill is like, we'll actually give you a couple months and it's probably, you know, look for a new job, support you and actually help you have a really good, transition out of our company the red pill is you tell us you want to make this work you want a performance improvement plan and our data is like just kind of terrible on this and all the feedback and stuff we're giving is this just isn't the right job for you most times people will take the red pill (laughs) yeah uh and i don't know whether it seems like the less painful but but i mean we're really sitting down we think in the nicest way possible kind of with a lot of data and trying to coach them and say like this this You know everything about this job seems counterintuitive to what you're looking for. They just have a really hard time pulling their own ripcord. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my experience of terminations is,
0: and it's not that I I love terminating people, but I've always found it's been such a positive experience for both sides because you're truly, if someone's under indexing, uh, they're not performing. Well, I want to free that person
1: up so they can go do it because I know that human beings are terrible at making decisions for themselves. Right. When you add time to the equation, I think when everyone adds a year to the equation, <laughs> then they look mm-hmm. back on it differently yeah. than than in the moment. Well, yes and no. I think there's an
0: artful way of having the conversation too. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe I might be a little bit better than others at having that conversation, but to your point, if you just do the rip the bandaid off, I mean, it can be shocking to some people, yeah. but there's of course uh, several conversations you can have ahead of time. And then it's like, you know, the person just comes to their own conclusion in that conversation that, you know what, yeah, this is this is not the right place for me to be.
1: Well, yeah, I, I think their ego blocks them a lot. I mean, look, we have one thing, look, we're a client service business, right? And so I think a lot of people come from in-house roles and and the feedback they're giving and the things they don't like are endemic to being a client service business. And so yeah. that's something we're like, look, this isn't going to change. <laughs> yeah. So that's going to be constant. So are, are are you sure that this is actually what you want to do? because I agree with you. I think when people are not performing in most cases, like when people really like what, like you were saying, if you love practice, you're great. If you don't like what you're doing really hard to be great at it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So do you have any plans uh, for future books or, or areas of study that you're working on in the performance world? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, my, my,
0: Publisher reached back out about uh, when they saw the, the study that I was doing on the CEOs. So there's been uh, some conversations around maybe a book on that. There's, you know, I've got a concept that I've talked to people about for a long time called uh, capabilities, and capabilities is spelled like the word CAPE, yeah. C A P E dash abilities. I like it. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, It's been my experience that some of the hardest times you've ever been through is actually where you've built your superpower. And most people are. They won't open up that door. They won't, because uh, maybe there's more pain around that thing, and so they're not allowing themselves to see that there's this phenomenal superpower that they actually are walking away from, and they're not sort of leaning into. So there's some. I'm working on a a book concept around that
1: as well, and yeah, but it's all sticking around the performance stuff. I see a whole Cape uh, sales business going along, going along with it. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> customize that's the e- customize that to e-com. Customize yeah. your own Cape. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll be my uh, running the affiliate side of things for us. <laughs> Perfect. I, you know, I have this concept that I've been working with a while around fly your flag. Similarly, like, you know, you could have a whole little, little flag operation. All right. Yeah. So last question to you, what, what, and this can be singular or repeated, but what's a personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from in your career? Um... I would say that the
0: years or the time that I wasn't growing as much as I had in other times had all one thing in common. And that was that I did not have at least one solid mentor that I was working with at the time. All of my greatest years of growth were always because I was tucking myself under the wing of someone else and apprenticing. I'm a big believer in mentorship. Like when you're younger, I'm a big believer in apprenticeship, finding people who have, you know, climbed a mountain and and done the work and tucking yourself underneath somehow their mentorship wing or or whatever. And, you know, there was a couple of three-year segments where maybe my ego got in the way and I thought that I had kind of figured things out. And um, there were the years of just the least growth that i would had. And in a lot of ways also the least amount of like meaning. Like I, I just get c- tremendous juice from being around people who are wise and smart and have been there and have got like, you know, calluses on their hands from, you know, lifting heavy stuff. So that's, that's it. Like I'm all about, I'm a, very much a relationship person. So that's been the biggest mistake.
1: Uh, yeah, that one, that one resonates with, with me a lot, a lot of, a lot of similarities there if you were to plot it on a on a chart yeah all right todd where can people learn more about you and your work in your book well my home base
0: on the internet is uh, ToddHerman.me, and that's where people can find about you know trainings and programs and you know the book itself i mean you can people go to uh, AlterEgoEffect.com alter to get you know details on the book and some other videos that we've got and uh yeah the links to all of our social media
1: and i'm active in a bunch of different areas people can find that at ToddHerman.me. All right, thanks for uh, finally making this happen and sharing your story with us. Hope you you stay safe. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, It's been a long couple months, but uh, thanks for joining the conversation today. Absolutely, a pleasure, man. Always love jamming with you. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Todd and his work on the detailed episode page at Robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or if you've been joining the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review or a rating as it helps new users discover the show. Thanks again for your support. Till next time, keep elevating.